Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, regulators and the government lay down the new order to the BBC and Channel 4 with new edicts on news, kids and regional production. We'll discuss the fallout from Salford's Nations and Regions Media Conference. The BBC's Director of Radio, Bob Shannon, talks to us about his plans for the networks and why commercial radio is no longer the enemy. Plus, the nominations are announced for the British Podcast Awards. There's talk of Lexit, George Osborne, and in the media quiz, truth is put to the ultimate test. Whatever that means. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today in the plush confines of the Picture House Central don't join and become a member, we enjoy the fact that not everyone knows about this place yet, is BuzzFeed's Louise Ridley, and making his media podcast debut is Kerfuffle TV's Stephen D. Wright. Hello. Hello. Uh, in three words, what do our listeners really need to know about you? Truth teller. Truth, truth teller's Truth teller. Media truth teller. No? Okay. The media truth teller you could just there about get away with in three words. All right. Uh, talking of words, you started out on the word. I did. That's, I mean, that's a podcast in itself talking about that, but it is. must be an education. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically it was one of those shows that you now think don't exist anymore. A Channel 4 show that broke the rules, did what the fuck it liked, and mm. changed the media world. You look at shows like now, ent- big entertainment shows, and they're nothing like that. Well, they're, they're not shambolic and all over the place. <laughs> oh, no, no. Shambolic and all over the place, but that sense of verve and, you know, I can't believe what I'm watching is really rare now on TV. Yes. Is that because people are unshockable or is it because channels don't take a risk? It's the latter. Okay. People are still sh- still very shockable. It's very easy to shock the TV audience. And, of course, you see quite a lot of shows that try and do it. You know, Chris Evans' kind of entire career has been trying to shock. But the, the viewers are on to him. You know, it's fake. When, when it's real and really shocking... It still works. But commissioners and, and, and the broadcasters are too scared to do that sort of thing, stuff again. Louise Ridley at BuzzFeed. There have been quite a few stories that some people may have been shocked by in the past. It sort of feels like anything can happen in politics these days. Have you become immune to the phrase Article 50? Does that just sound like white noise now? It, it does a bit, to be honest. Obviously, we've had a very busy, you know, all news producers have had a very busy couple of weeks but it was a funny day on on Wednesday wasn't it because we all knew it was going to happen so we had a great you know we had plans in place things to write it happened as expected now we've got two years (laughs) so it's that funny news but not news you know nothing's happening it's just the beginning of a very long and exhausting process and we will all become immune to a lot of it and by the time it's all finished I'm not sure we're going to remember how it started and what on earth has happened. And, And how does a digital news agency report on the delivery of a letter? 
<laughs> well, Shakespearean actually, style very, messenger very, delivering a paper letter. <laughs> we did a very fine thing on the um, on the hoof yesterday where we just we have a cool new sort of um, annotating tool. So we got the letter and, and just did little annotations all over it in a sort of kind of informative yet quirky style, which is what we like to do. And that did really well because if someone sees, you know, we had read the full letter kind of thing, you see a three, four page letter. It's not that interesting. You probably can't actually be bothered to read it. But if someone writes explainers on it, then it just makes it a lot easier to digest, I think. And so, yeah, that was good fun. Do you worry that there are people in Brussels who have read your bracy rather than the letter itself? It's a worry. I mean, who knows what's going on on either side, let's be honest. Uh, it's inevitable. What, what do you think of Legsit, both of you? I should ask you before we progress any further. It's going to be the big media story of the week, in a way. So it was very interesting knowing that we might chat through this coming on here because I was someone who um, tweeted my, my outrage about this, I'm afraid to say. So it's kind of, you know, my, my viewers out there. I, so this is, this I was is the not Daily impressed. Mail front page. Daily Mail front page. Nicola yeah, Sturgeon, Theresa May. You've had a big meeting legs. of two female leaders talking about possible Scottish independence and Brexit and all kinds of very important things and the male had as their front cover a picture of the two who happened to both be wearing navy suits and looking very fabulous it's okay to say that I think uh, is it okay they, to well, say well, that is it okay it's to say okay that? for it's a woman to say that right, is it okay yeah. to say that Stephen you're absolutely right it may not be okay to say that Whoa, look but at they those went with, politicians <laughs> exactly so the male went with that angle they tried to make it fun and provocative one would say because they obviously knew the sort of backlash they would get which was you chose to focus on these women politicians legs etc do you, do you think they page. did know the yes, kind, do you think they knew the scale of backlash they'd get because they probably thought the twitterati wouldn't like it they probably didn't think it would be a talking point on five live for the whole of the next day i mean day. the daily mail gets gets so much backlash these days that they obviously they're very smart obviously they know what they're doing but i thought it was very interesting that the following day they ran a double page coverage of the backlash mm. about their own front page which they don't do very often mm. um, and sort of put some different views out there by and a woman. Stuff. it was and Sarah it was Vine that wrote the piece it wasn't a, man, mm. a man's perspective it was a, a woman's light hearted perspective mm. I think they called it so the backlash was not surprising at all but the, the number of complaints to Ipso was a lot they had 1,600 complaints which is an awful lot of complaints I think it was putting it on the front page that, yes, that enraged I'm... people if, it, if they had a bit something a bit more serious not never mind Brexit when of course the mail has been banging on about Brexit for ages it, it was the placement of it as more important than other stuff I think there's also I mean it, there's a lot of virtue signalling amongst liberal Twitter users saying that they don't like the Daily Mail but they're sort of preaching to the choir there's more reticence usually from public figures to say they don't like the Daily Mail because mm. they don't want the backlash um, and they want to be seen as someone who champions the common man and woman who reads the Daily Mail but with this, I did notice people who wouldn't normally say that they were opposed to it saying they were opposed to it. For example, I was watching Lorraine that day, had a busy morning, uh, and she opened the show by, with a little monologue about this is outrageous and I, you know, there's no this, excuse this for is, it. This is old school feminism. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's something that everyone can be on the right side of quite easily. Mm. You know, nobody knows whether they can come out as a, ref- or as a Remainer or as a Brexiteer and face the public, but you can easily go, oh, it's so sexist. Away from Legsit uh, and on to NAM17. Is that how we say it? Sure. Sure. Uh, the Nations and Regions Media Conference in Salford. I don't think anyone's calling it NAM. <laughs> <laughs> Nam survivors or Nam flashbacks, yeah. maybe. Apocalypse okay. now. What perhaps. would you prefer? Would you prefer N A R M? Oh, I don't know. That also sounds like That's uh, a bit hip hop, isn't it? Well, it sounds like something to do with the N R A. I think once you start spelling mm. it out. Uh, anyway, it was none of these things. Uh, it was a relatively boring conference about <laughs> the regionality of the British media scene. Uh, nonetheless, there's important stories coming out of it. Uh, Ofcom's head Sharon White has said that the BBC should be required to produce more peak time news and kids TV. CBBC will be expected to show at least 400 hours of original commissioning, 
with CBBS hitting 100 hours a year. Uh, Stephen Ofcom enjoying their new role, regulating the beam. You can see the level of excitement, the hysteria in my voice at this, <laughs> with the glamour of Ofcom finally getting to play with the BBC and coming out with a boring kind of regulation that no one really cares about. Well, what does more peak time news actually mean? They already have. I the mean, they've got news, news, and news, and news, 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 and yeah. they've got kids' TV channels everywhere. So it's kind of a. To me, this feels like you know this is what you referred to as earlier in that media term, virtue signalling by Ofcom. They're not saying don't employ paedophiles, you know, and don't be... To be uh, fair, I think that's don't implicit, be so left wing <laughs> against, <laughs> you know, against Brexit or anything like that. They're coming out with a very boring, safe kind of statement that no one's ever got any objections with, really. That's what it is. It's going, to me, this is a very sort of dull... But as an entertainment producer, do you have an objection to it? Because more news... To this? Means, yeah, but more news and kids' TV means less money for the kind of shows you make. Well, I don't know. I mean, one of the big problems at the moment is that news is using BBC Three as an outlet... And that's, that really does affect me as an entertainment producer because they're using um, current affairs to fill the BBC Three slots. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're not using any entertainment or comedy. And so it's becoming very dull and worthy. I mean, very classically journalistic, very interesting, you know, but there's only so many times you can watch a documentary about a teenage Algerian prostitute having, you know, genital mutilation or something. You're like, you know, give us a bit of a laugh. Youth culture should be fun. And BBC Three has fallen into a bit of a current affairs sort of sinkhole or whatever which I know they're now trying to stop, you know, because they've sort of realised it's a bit too newsy. So this so is the sort of Reggie Stacey right type you know? stuff, you mean? What's that? This is the Stacey and Reggie type documentary. Well, I mean, that's the entertainment version of news, you know what I mean? What They've also got quite hardcore stuff as well, you know, but they've gone right down that, and, 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 and news is quite dominant at the BBC at the moment. It's, you know, no one can say no to news. But then, you know, these are serious times, are it's they not? It's really? happening, I yeah. was going to say, yeah. It's, it's a tough one, I think. I'm kind of just about of the age that BBC Three aims at um, and yeah I think of it as a, as an original entertainment and comedy that's what I want it to be but th- those documentaries we mentioned is interesting with Reggie Yates and stuff because they're they're a real fusion of sort oh, yeah, of proper, light proper entertainment news. and I mean, then they are you know, real journalism I think they're really but there's good. a lot of stuff that's actually newsy I mean those two Stacey and, and, and Reggie are presenters presenting documentaries there's lots of single person documentaries that are pure documentary in a very current affairsy way mm. you know and it's, it's the current affairs commissioners that are doing more commissioning for BBC Three than the entertainment commissioners. And what do we think about Vice UK? Uh, Alex Miller there saying there are opportunities for indies there, but no formal commissioning structure. Mm, again, media bullshit in other words, but basically Vice um, are in-house producers par excellence, don't pay very well. Um, and Which so, we've had Tom Latchin moaning about on the show before. Well, as well, it's true. I mean, you know, but they will say, oh, yes, we will take ideas from independents. But independents aren't really going to go to Vice unless they get paid for them. So it's a little bit of a, you know, it sounds good. Again, it's one of these things that sounds good, you know. Um, but Vice is, you know, one of the channels that seems to be buying. So therefore, every independent production company will eventually go there, cap in hand, and take whatever rubbish money they're offering. But if you're an indie listening to this and you think, yeah, we've got a perfect idea for Vice, th- there is a kind of idea that only really does work there. BBC Three used to be Vice, and then BBC Three became kind of a light current affairs show or channel, and now Vice has taken a lot of that more funky youth culture stuff. So it's good that it exists, but it isn't buying off the, off the industry. It's, it's keeping the money in itself, you know, in its kind of virtuous circle. It's worrying um, as well to say there's no formal commissioning structure. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I don't know the insides of that, but working for a big, I know Vice is TV as well now, but it's online as well, working for a big company like BuzzFeed, you need some sort of commissioning process to give 
have a fair process. Well, you know, when you send an idea in, who, who you are you giving that to idea to? Well, that's interesting. I mean, the perception from the outside is that BuzzFeed is exactly the kind of company where you can, if you work there, write an email to someone quite senior and say, hey, name first name basis, I've got a great idea, let's make a show. Is yeah. that not the case? Yeah, no, you could do that from inside. But I mean, someone who's coming and pitching an idea, you want, I've got sort of guidelines what, that I commissioned for special projects and long form stuff. You need to know if you're pitching from the outside to a company, what they might do with it, what you might be paid, how it works. And that's kind of something you want to know as there's someone outside, definitely. Okay, sticking yeah. with Salford, Culture Secretary Karen Bradley told delegates this woo. week Give that, her a uh, woo. yes, a woo for Karen yeah, Bradley, right. that Channel 4 will not be privatised. Can we not get a whoop for that? A weary sigh of relief, I think. <laughs> uh, because, I'm guessing, Stephen, uh, there's because still risk of it being forced to move outside the capital. Birmingham. Yeah, okay. We are punishing you for not privatising by sending you to Birmingham, which was, the, which was the threat all along that everyone was kind of worried about. What's so awful about Birmingham? Uh, nothing. Nothing's wrong. I mean, I actually looked on Rightmove yesterday, and you can get a seven-bedroom <laughs> house in Edgebuston for £600,000. Yeah. You know, they do have, you know... Electricity, running water, and 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 all sorts of shops. Selfridges, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the weirdness is is the the fact that it feels slightly punitive from the government to Channel Four. It doesn't really feel. It feels like tokenism and box ticking, which is always a great thing in in creative industries. But you know what I mean. It's like the idea that indies will have to go up to Birmingham. I mean, I, I'd love to see how many people are going to quit their jobs in commissioning at Channel Four. Um, no, there's nothing wrong with it, but it does seem like a bit of a sort of false promise or deliberate sort of I don't know you know thing to try and appease people none of whom are actually moaning about it that loudly Channel 4's put out a really strong statement saying that it will really damage their business and their ability to reach all kinds of people and things so and that, that's of, because the advertising agencies are well, mostly yes. based here right? yeah. <laughs> yeah they say it will uh, damage their business model diminish investment and yeah their overall contribution to the UK economy which you know is a pretty strong statement and, but it did surprise me reading about this that Channel 4, only 3% of its permanent staff are outside London. And I think, yes, you're right, it's tokenism to, to say get out of London, but it's an important issue with how people outside London see the media, which increasingly... But there is a problem, about. isn't there, with people comparing it to the BBC and their move mm. to Salford, because the BBC is enormous and, and paid for people to relocate from London and get but mortgages. Also remember, you mean, people Very are forgetting true. what they did. The BBC did that in order to stave off Daily Mail criticism and the government's criticism. It was an absolute sort of last chance saloon or we'll do this as a kind of smokescreen you know and lots of people haven't gone to to manchester you know manchester's great and if you're if you're if you're 21 and starting a job in media move to manchester forget the high rents of london and everything else one of the problems with this is that they don't realize how hard it is for indies based in london struggling with no commissions you know because the, the other end of this move to to birmingham thing is uh, raise the quota from 35% to 50%. That's the really dangerous thing. But uh, let's just talk about that, because Channel 4 apparently already uh, orders more than 50% of its programming from indies who are based outside London. So actually it doesn't make any difference increasingly. None of this it. does. This is, it, is all, it is tokenism and done for... This is to be played out on political uh, you know, front pages of the Daily Mail and whoever. The, the indies aren't necessarily saying move to Birmingham or Manchester. There's another kind of bleating kind of campaign now to move to Manchester, which makes slightly more sense. Um, because if you are an indie based in Leeds and you've got to go to Birmingham, you're going to go to Birmingham for one mi- meeting. Whereas if you come to London, you can see a couple of other people, you can see other channels, you know, Discovery, Netflix, whoever. But it's, it's oh, I don't know, it's just, it just feels like, oh, here we go again. And there's nothing wrong with having something based outside of London. It's the fact that they're forcing them to do it as a kind of, again, this horrible phrase, virtue signalling, this time on behalf of the government. 
forcing Channel 4. I mean, it's got that sense, that kind of slightly kind of, yeah, we haven't privatised you, so we're just going to fuck with you where you with your postcode. Uh, moving on, the world's most popular search engine, uh, if you don't know which Woo! one that is, Google it, uh, has run into a spot of trouble with its advertisers after revelations that ads for Volkswagen Channel 4, them again, and the UK government, had been running against extremist content on YouTube. And after McDonald's and AT&T pulled their ads in the States, Google have started to worry about this. This week they announced discounted rates to woo back their clients. Louise, Google have taken such a sizable chunk of the advertising market. Do you think this is actually good news for traditional media, that some, some, some of these advertisers might start pulling back? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important thing to be raised and it you know brands are right to not want to be associated with bad content and it's right for the wider public to understand vaguely how things like you know programmatic advertising work in terms of things appearing next to content that they may not have known about and that's sort of a good thing for everyone to know about i think i mean google is so big and the the amount spent with it is so big and you know discounted rates i'm sure lots of these advertisers will be back again with google soon so i don't know if anyone else is going to benefit hugely financially but i think it is an important ethical thing and it's very good that brands took a stand and pulled out, even though I'm not sure that will be for that long. Well, it only seemed to happen in this country after it was flagged up by the Sunday Times. And as yeah, you say, exactly, it seemed blindingly you know. obvious that this was a controversy that could happen. Mm, yeah, exactly. You know, and yeah, if, something's if you been going on for ages. And you put ads in front of them. Yeah, it's going to be an ongoing one. And controlling it is, you know, I don't know how if Google's announced uh, what steps it's actually going to do. I know it's going to look at it, but how do you control that kind of thing when YouTube motto? doesn't? Don't be evil. That's right, yeah. <laughs> great motto. It's like, ooh, the irony. Well, they'd say that, that they are evil. Well, they'd say that they're supporting free speech and the rights yeah, of people to say those yeah, things by funding them through advertising. And is that evil? How many you know? jihadists are buying Volkswagens? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> uh, well, what Google have said is that they're accelerating their review into how their ads are allotted. Shouldn't they already know how their ads are allotted? But I mean, the problem with YouTube, if we're talking about this, is not what ads appear next to it. It's that the extremist content is there. I mean, that's yeah. the thing that people well, care about more, at least. It. There's too many of them, and our algorithms can't keep up. The, what <laughs> they don't want to wade into is a situation where they are seen as a media company rather than a technology company, right? Even though, clearly, if they're selling advertising and they have some jurisdiction over content, then they are a media company. They don't want to be seen to saying, this is all right, this isn't all right, this enforces our values. Because at that point... They can be blamed for anything that anyone says from their bedroom. We've seen that in the media recently after the um, Westminster attack. Everyone, you know, taking aim at Google, taking aim at YouTube, taking aim at WhatsApp, some of which is is very valid and interesting. But it's interesting, this sort of tide Mm. of criticising these kinds of companies, which they're probably not very happy about, I would imagine. Nothing to do with me, Gov. (laughs) I think that's their new new motto. We were evil, but now it's nothing to do with us. Uh, All right, let's talk about um, the big story, actually, of the last two or three weeks, but it happened to coincide with the day after we recorded the last episode, so it wasn't in there. The new editor of The Evening Standard, Mr George Osborne. Louise, what... I was so shocked. <laughs> Wasn't ever, I actually, I, it I was, was a really shocking piece of news yeah. I found. I was doing um, a local radio show and it flashed up on my TV in the studio and I nearly swore on air just in it. And then I realised the listeners wouldn't care. But I, mean, I was just like, that's genuinely jaw-dropping news. There were all news. kinds of guesses for this job and most of them, I'm happy to say, were experienced journalists. <laughs> and then it was just an absolute shocker. But, but in some ways it makes a lot of sense in that, you know, here's someone who's got loads of financial connections, got big connections in London. You know, you see why they might it want to hire him, but it... Sense, well, as a paper. Uh, I mean, well, you know, because from so. a journalistic <laughs> perspective, it makes no sense whatsoever. As a exercise in, in uh, networking mm. or something, 
it kind of makes sense. But that's like a cocktail party argument. I'm sure We've that's still got to read this paper that he's supposedly editing during his five other jobs that well, he's I doing. Well, I think that tells that perhaps he won't be doing that much editing. Well, it's it's, be a it's figurehead a, editor, it's a figurehead not editor. a real yes, journalist. That would be my assumption. It seems to me we've seen the diminishing <laughs> of the role of editor and what that is over the past few years. And it's, it's the media's fault. It's our fault for having guest editors of, of the Today programme and Women's Hour and guest editors of the Radio Times. And clearly these people turn up for a day for an hour and they do absolutely bugger all editing. This guy's got a permanent job. Yeah, but it's, it's not the same. It's clearly going to be the deputy editor's job to edit the paper and George Osborne's mm. job to go to parties and say he's yeah. the editor. The idea that someone famous can be an editor is, is, the, is an interesting point that has come up in the last couple of years a lot more. I just think there's a, it's that he's a serving politician that's the problem on many many you know if he was yeah. my mp i'd say well what <laughs> you know it just so really just doesn't work his, his editorial skills yeah his, aside from that his I linguistic think a ability to, to knock out a leader that kind of or a sensational mm. kelvin mckenzie style headline well he'd say because it's the evening standard because it's specifically that paper he can get there at five in the morning work until 11 a.m and then go to parliament and take part in the debates in the afternoon so he he can do both jobs because he's the paper got loads gets of other jobs early. as well I he think. has got loads of other jobs as well advising banks and stuff for yeah. me it's the mp That's issue you can do that in five minutes <laughs> <laughs> i advise a lot of banks for me it's the, the actually the mp issue of course yeah his journalistic abilities and background are questionable but it's it's the fact that someone's a serving MP and of course we all know all kinds of publications and especially papers have a political leaning but to have someone who is who can be told to do something by a whip and who is in the governing party you know that that's a very you know crossing a big line in terms of political leanings it's how much money strange. do you need to earn George Osborne <laughs> I mean, but how this much is money do you want? This is for need? influence, isn't it? I don't think this is for money. This it's, is because he vanity? he I mean, isn't the leader of the Conservative Party. He's a failed party. journalist. He's tried he tried out for the, was it the Times editorial trainee the scheme, graduate or scheme twice, and apparently. failed that. So he obviously does want to be a journalist. I'm, so. I'm also a proudly rejected from the Times graduate you? scheme alumni, and I, I, I'm doing all right. So there you go. You, you're going to be the next <laughs> Chancellor of the Exchequer. Thanks. <laughs> I love Can't the wait. idea that you'd use the media podcast to say, I'm all right, folks. Look yeah. what you turned down. I've got a job. <laughs> I'm sitting here <laughs> on me, a free show. Media. I think, to be fair, I think a lot of people have been rejected from the Times Graduate Scheme. It was one of the only, or, only sort of organised ones mm. when I was at uh, Journalism College. So I'm I think trying there's, to think there's many people with George. What posh you know. jobs I got rejected for. <laughs> I did go for a researcher's job on Dimbleby when that was an ITV. I got rejected ah, from there. I got, I got rejected for Pets Win Prizes years ago. No, that was a great show. Um, Danny Baker era or Dale Winton? It was the first iteration. So it would have well, been, that was Baker. So I never got that job. So I've suffered ever since. Really. Yeah, yeah, you have. I mean, that would have. I mean, don't get me That's wrong. Why I've ended up here today. The, <laughs> the word was good, but pets win prizes really define the generation. We'll be back with uh, more media chit chat after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now, last week saw the annual Radio Days Europe conference, this time in Amsterdam. As usual, Paul Robinson was there to interrogate the biggest names, and this year he bagged us an interview with the BBC's director of radio, no less, former controller of Radio 2, Bob Shannon. He's only been in the role for three months, so Paul started by asking Bob about the state of the radio medium. Radio in the UK is actually enjoying quite good numbers just now. The last Rajar figures showed the second highest ever reach to radio across all radio, BBC and commercial. That's pretty heartening. It also showed a stabilising of hours, which was encouraging, and some amazing individual performances by networks. Um, you know, nine in ten adults are still tuning in to the radio every single week, but of course there are challenges, particularly amongst the younger demographics. And by younger, I think, you know, we need to recognise we're talking about 45 and under, not just, you know, 15 to 24-year-olds. So paradoxically, we're doing rather well, and yet we've got these phenomenal challenges to, to traditional media and to the sector, and we have to develop our strategy to take our audience from the places they want to be and bring them to the riches of radio and take our radio into the places where the audience are spending their time. So let's talk about that younger audience. And, and the um, change we're seeing in the UK is also being seen in many markets around the world. Young people are generally uh, listening to less radio, so fewer hours per listener. But also many of them are now starting to stop listening. It's small, but it's a gradual dripping away. And we've seen that now over successive Rajar quarters. So how do you um, re-energise those young people who are probably you know, brought up on YouTube and a video world? How do you make audio only attractive to them? Well, I think you have to have a, a kind of a, a strategy based on a number of different initiatives. The first is you've got to make your core linear service as good as it possibly can be. Uh, you've got to make sure that it is working as hard as possible to attract audiences in the, say, 15 to 24 bracket, which is really, really hard to do. Mobile phone is all-powerful these days. But remember, 84% of 15 to 24s are listening to the radio still. And actually, in that last radio, you saw commercial radio actually growing the hours in that area. So it is possible to make linear radio work, but just to rely on linear radio, I think, is not enough. You look at the efforts that our Radio 1 has put in to going to where their audience is spending their time. Radio 1 has developed a real proposition now in YouTube and Vivo. I think they have something over 4 million subscribers now in that space, more than any other radio service in the world. Amazingly, every single day, 100,000 hours of video content from Radio 1 are consumed. 100,000 hours of video content from Radio 1. We've got to develop the brands. You know, we've got to use the digital springboard to take 
Radio 1 and its core values, its core purpose, uh, to a wider market, to a wider world than just expecting people to come to linear radio. We've got to do both. It's not either or, it's both. We've got to have a great linear and a great digital strategy. And we've got to believe that the quality of what we do will attract audiences to come to our services in the future. I mean, if you take Radio 1 for an example, which is particularly um, affected by the development of streaming services these days, of course it is, um, you can already start to see the importance of Radio 1 and other music radio services in magnifying the impact of streaming services. You're starting to realise, actually, that music industry is beginning to think... How are we going to make sure that the UK music offer isn't dominated by great big global numbers? There's a role for radio to play, a curatorial role for Radio 1 to play in that space because audiences will go in search of that kind of curation and those trusted guides and authorities. That's one of the key roles Radio 1 can play. So at every turn we've got to find the purpose, find the added advantage that will bring audiences to that public service content. Is there a strategic weakness there and that is that um, Google, owners of YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram are global largely US dominated companies and you're obviously putting content on there very successfully in the case of Radio 1 but what you are doing of course is using someone else's platform, a platform that is a multinational competitor effectively, to build the BBC Radio. Is that is that not a weakness? Well it, it is, it's a dilemma of course it is, but twas ever thus. Um, you know, there are so many examples of, of businesses that have been uh, built by uh, working outside of their own space and their own confines, but it's a valid observation. The point you make, though, about these great big global imposters in our UK radio <laughs> market is the critical one. You know, the landscape that we operate in has totally changed. We do not spend a lot of time in BBC Radio talking about the commercial sector as our competition. To be honest, increasingly, we need to see them as our allies because this is about the future of radio. And I think it's really essential that we recognise that the challenges are universal for all of us and the benefits of working together on certain key strategic priorities are going to be immense because we have to recognise that these big global horsemen of the internet apocalypse know no international boundaries, they care not for public service broadcasters, they're interested in partnering, they want content, and they're fighting a battle with one another. And we need to make sure we don't get caught in the crossfire, that we flourish in the new market. And they're also actually stealing BBC talent. You know, that's always been the case, that, you know, uh, a, new, a new business model, a new game in town... It's flattering that, that they're going to come to the BBC. I'm quite proud of that. I'm not bothered about it. We've got lots and lots of great talent. You're director of radio now, but been controller of Radio 2. Very successful for a number of years. You've had to make some quite tough decisions recently in the uh, wake of BBC um, cuts. You know, you've had some very tight uh, and tough decisions to make because of lack of money. Um, is that a risk now for BBC Radio that maybe there won't be enough money to fund the sort of things you want to do? There'll be money that we will need to make available to fund the things that we need to do, but we'll need to find that money from within our own resources. I'd be kidding myself and you if I said BBC Radio isn't going to have to make its contribution to meeting not just the challenge of the most recent licence fee settlement, where there's a £800 million hole to be filled, 
But also, if we are going to be able to adapt our services and do some new things, both in a linear and a digital space, we're going to need to make the money available for that. So you're right, we've had to make some very difficult decisions, not just on Radio 2, on all the services. Some of them the audience notice, some of them the audience don't notice as much. But over the last five or six years, I think something like 30, 35 million pounds has come out of the cost base of BBC Radio. Um, Is it 10%? It's, no, it's more than that. It's uh, of the actual disposable income, it's something like 25% of, of, of our spend on content which is a considerable amount. Actually, I think, you know, it's testament to all the networks that they've handled them very deftly and carefully, but at times it's impossible to disguise it and the audience doesn't like it. We have to continue to find ways of saving money in order to invest in the future. It's just essential to the strategy going forward. Now, you will forgive me for asking this, but what's the truth then behind the Brian Matthew and Tony Blackburn stories? Because there's been all sorts of speculation. So tell us the, the truth, Bob, about Brian and Tony. Well, I don't know what you think is the truth, but um, I personally have been to see Brian. Uh, I went to see him at his home because, like everybody, I think, I would love if Brian had been able to just keep going on with Sounds of the 60s forever on a Saturday morning. I can't remember Radio 2 before Brian Matthew was the sound of Saturday morning. That amazing voice, that incredible experienced uh, brain that he would bring to every uh, selection of records uh, that he put together with Phil Swern for Sounds of the 60s. But Brian is now past his 88th birthday. Um, He's not been very well doing a weekly show, coming in to, to do a weekly show in the allotted time becomes more and more uh, demanding for anybody um, and and it's I, I know it's the right time for Brian to step back from the weekly treadmill um, but when I went to see him I was really pleased that he was willing to carry on doing some occasional programmes so he is still going to be on Radio 2 in fact he's going to be on Radio 2 over the Easter period I think that's the right way, that's the respectful way to, to treat somebody who has served the BBC so brilliantly and I'm, I'm certain it's the right thing in the end for Brian, the audience and for Radio 2. And you gave Tony Blackburn another chance, two new shows now. Tony uh, has his golden hour on, on Friday evenings and, and is now the host of uh, Sounds of the 60s on Saturday morning. And we moved the programme because it's an opportunity when somebody so acutely associated with the programme as Brian Matthews steps down, you have to recognise it's going to be a different programme. No matter how you would like it to continue, exactly the same, it isn't and it won't be. You have to adapt it, you have to change it. Having somebody with Tony's experience and passion is a great opportunity for us. Um, but we decided also to make a change in the schedule. We wanted to, we wanted to bring in a, a breakfast programme on a Saturday morning. We wanted to give Dermot O'Leary the chance to be the big mainstream Dermot O'Leary broadcaster that, that, that our audience is very familiar with. We also wanted to create space for Zoe Ball to come back into the fold at Radio 2. And they're two broadcasters who, who certainly have that kind of connection with the under-45 audience that we were talking about earlier. It's an evolution of the schedule. Sounds of the 60s is here to stay, but it's going to be different because it can't be the same without Brian.
Bob Shannon talking to Paul Robinson. Thanks very much to both of them. Louise Ridley and Stephen D. Wright are still with me now. And let's talk about the press, because the Times and Sunday Times have announced a boom in online subscribers since they dropped their breaking news format and decided to deliver three editions of the website a day. One at 9am, one at midday, and one at 5pm. Louise, is that the only reason for this rise in readers, do you think? I'm not entirely sure, because they they started doing this strategy, I think, in March, and the rise in subscribers, which does sound impressive, which is 200% rise in new subscribers. It was the first half of the year. So I don't know. I haven't seen anything which linked. They haven't released all of the information and what's been going on. So I don't know if we can link those two things. Well, they had a, a, a newly redesigned website, didn't they, as yeah, well? You know, it's, and they've it's redesigned elements of, of the morning. papers too. Exactly. So there's been other changes as well. I think this idea of what they've done online is really, really interesting. The idea of reining back on the breaking news is a really good format and more and more people are experimenting with it I don't know if we've had that kind of thing for long enough to see but there's things like the women's website called The Pool which does a kind of broadcast format releases stuff in lots about every hour or two and they're doing really well increasing rapidly the number of readers they have so I think it's it's a nice sort of antidote to this the constant constant flow of news that we all feel perhaps doing something a bit more considered and stepping back three times a day is according to their research what times readers wanted so i think it's yeah interesting thing to do definitely yeah what is that about Stephen? is it is it just that when you go to the times you know the paper of record you know i know their reputation's been diminished a bit but basically still very establishment authoritarian voice you actually just want a considered piece you don't want something that's leaking out drip by drip moment by moment you want something that someone's thought about and you know has been subbed yeah no absolutely it should be the times as opposed to you know the metro because they're sort of equally valid in terms of online presence or whatever but um I'm one of the recent subscribers to the Times. Are you? That I suddenly found myself, why have I done this? And because there was too many times that I kept hitting the firewall, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do it. And so that was it. I did it for some reason. And I think the biggest treat Do you regret me, it now? Is that no, what you're no, saying? No, no, I get my 9am. I get my 9am email and I actually look at it every day now. Um, but the thing, the biggest thing for me on the Times is um, the cartoonist. He's the Peter abso- Brooks. Yeah, he's, he's amazing, the isn't he? absolute yeah. thing to look at. He defines to me what the news is, and like in a way that very few other cartoonists do. He, he other than Matt, say or somebody like that, he's the best. I agree uh, with you. And, and the first time you see his stuff, you think, okay, well, that's just a crude picture of Jeremy Corbyn. And then you realise he's actually channeling an artist from two hundred years ago and making a yeah. double entendre about oh, no, the film they, title. They, they're just incredible. Yeah, incredible cartoons. And so it, I don't know. For some reason, the time seems to be coming into itself a bit. Possibly it's all this news we keep talking about. You know, it's actually got things to write about. But that that little bit of we're a bit bigger than everyone else or we're a bit more considered or something, Mm. it's starting to to become something. Because The Guardian, you know, the kind of the other paper of record for the left-wing liberati like me, is a bit kind of anything goes. Whereas The Times is a little bit more sort of, it is a bit more considered, it is a bit more... You know, a little bit more credible, a little bit more gravitas. I don't know. I think also it takes a lot of confidence for a brand to try any kind of different thing online because it's such a race and there's such a pressure. And I've like I've worked in online news for several years. There's a constant, what's everyone else doing? Let's do it, let's do it. So to step back and not jump on something when you've had that real instinct, especially with online news, it takes takes confidence and it should be applauded because not everyone does that. And it is part of a wider digital trend as well, isn't it? Uh, there's the Yahoo News uh, summary app, there's Twitter Moments, 
this idea that tick you've read all the news you know as opposed to this endless stream that you get when you open the apple news app for example i mean there's massive fatigue around just feeling overwhelmed by news i think so my my very job at buzzfeed is part of my job is long form editor so i'm editing what you used to see in saturday papers you know big 4000 word essays we make them look amazing and we're sort of breaking news but it's definitely about the quality of the writing that's not a job you would have seen in online mm. several years ago so there's definitely this almost reversing on itself and taking some of the best of print and just staying still and thinking on the internet it's a nice a nice move i think it's very interesting what's happening and actually in in fairness compared to what Stephen was just saying about the guardian i mean they i imagine are one of your competitors there right the long read in the guardian does the seem guardian to be something they're doing very yeah, well of course yeah i mean the guardian has amazing uh, long reads it's definitely something it's very interesting so i'm the uk edition of buzzfeed but there's a much more established tradition in the u.s of long reads so buzzfeed in the u.s has been kind of killing it and doing long things for ages as have you know the New York Times and everything else in New Yorker. Uh, so in the UK, we're actually catching up slightly. We haven't quite got that tradition of of long reads on the internet yet. So it's it's an exciting time. The New Yorker is the other one I would definitely say is, mm. is 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 kind of coming to the top or you know coming into its own because they do do. I, I I will check that stuff. They do a very great. They do a lovely little email that says you've reached the end of your limit this month after you've read four articles. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to pay. Are. I'm not going to pay again. Go no, just, on. This is all about free news. <laughs> uh, if I may, just be as old-fashioned as to comment on paper. May I say as well that the redesigned style and culture supplements in the Sunday Times. Big thumbs up for me. Yeah. Don't they look nice? It looks really. really I mean, good. it's like they five are. years too late, but they look really good now. No, they've they've done some really good yeah. innovations. It's a great paper. Uh, okay, right. Uh, nominations were announced on Friday for everyone's talking about it. The first British Podcast Awards. Uh, full disclosure. Producer Matt is the co-founder of the awards, uh, and that is why you won't see any of my shows amongst the nominations. I was deemed too close to the source. And you were a judge. I was honoured to be a judge. So we can't talk too much about the process. Uh, But, uh, Stephen, can can we say what category you judged? Can we say that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Matt says okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I judged the branding category. You judged comedy. comedy. Yeah. Which I thought was going to be a right laugh. Um... (laughs) Welcome to the world of podcasts. And yes, what was the some ratio? Of them weren't that funny? Shows that made you laugh. Uh, are the five nominees all shows that are funny though? Yes, there was one that I personally didn't love as much as the other judges, but I had to concede a little bit. Um, but the winner of that section is definitely a uh, work of art. I, you see, I'd say that in in my category as well. Mm. Um, I think there were about fifteen nominees, and we whittled it down to five that were good, and we all agreed on the winner. But I think what was interesting for me was uh, one of our fellow judges in my category was based in Australia, um, so we were doing the mm. judging over FaceTime, and he was saying he just judged the Australian Podcast Awards, and he said the shit ones in Australia were really shit. And actually, the general standard in the UK was, you know, at least you could hear what everyone was saying. They'd been well produced. They'd been thought about. Um, so I think, you know, thumbs up for British podcasting. And the shortlist, I've been in this game a long time, a representative and, and broad sample of what's out there in Britain, which is nice to see. Don't you think, Louise? Yes, indeed. Yeah, very exciting. Where can we find that shortlist? Are you going to plug where we can discover it? And when this podcast goes out, I believe it might be, might be live. BritishPodcastAwards.com is where you can find the list of everything that's been nominated. Yes. Had you heard any of the shows on the list? No. Well, that's a good thing, though, isn't it? This is actually quite interesting. So it it really made me realise, A, I need to listen to more different podcasts, because I love podcasts, 
when I say that to people, it's actually that I listen to a select few that are ongoing obsessively. But that feels like that's the many number of hours I've got in my week. So I love American podcasts. I'm really hooked at the moment on the new one from the producers of This American Life called S-Town. Yes. It's really good. But I need to broaden. I need to listen to more British ones. I do listen to some. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be a good education for me to catch up on hot new podcasts that I need to be involved with. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a very good idea. And it's long overdue that we actually have this awards due. And uh, good to see Scummy Mummies on the list. That's what I would. That's my personal pick in your category, actually, I believe, Stephen. Uh, big fan of Scummy Mummies. I can mummies. say nothing. As yes, I'm don't hint, don't hint as to it. Yeah, sure. yeah, I'm just, personally, I think that's a good show. Uh, right, and finally, just before the quiz, a quick mention for the new unauthorised biography of the Daily Mail under editor Paul Dacre. Uh, it's by Adrian Addison, and it's called Mail Men. And it's caused enough of a stink for the Daily Mail to respond, telling the Press Gazette, I quote, Every paper in Fleet Street has its trail of resentful former hacks emptying saloon bars around the world with their yarns of great operators and bastard bosses. Mr Addison must be congratulated on tracking down so many of them and even persuading a few to speak on the record. It's a shame their tales are as much moonshine as their expenses once were. Stephen, this has made it sound like a book you definitely would enjoy. I would love this book. And Paul Dacre has a reputation par excellence of being the biggest bastard boss of all time. I mean, his favourite word is a word I use quite often in my daily life. See you next Tuesday. Uh, see you next Tuesday. He's, he's a great one for calling people out and sh- sh- ripping them to shreds and is legendary for this. So it is very arch that the Mail has written this kind of, you know, ooh, you know, ooh, you don't, you don't scare us because it's all a load of rubbish. I mean, this, is, this sounds like every word is true to me. Well, they're not suing them, are they? And it is getting ah. published, so, the yeah. they replied, I think, will make everyone want to read it more because yeah. it sounds like quite a great book, even from that does, description, yeah. and, that and rubbishing actually, description. The fact that it is being published does tell you that there's interest from the general public, not just the media industry, in the way the Daily Mail works. I mean, it's back to our first discussion about Lexit, isn't there? Like, people are interested in that paper in a way that mm. they're not about the Express. Mm. I think, you know, especially journalists, but especially people who hate the Daily Mail, a lot of people hate it, but it, that it's in a kind of obsessive, kind of way so I think exactly yes and and, and may think that Paul Dacre is a kind of twisted genius you know even if they don't like he he does he is a genius it's like Kevin McKenzie you know horrible man brilliant journalist yeah you can't doubt the success that's the thing that that sort of whatever it is the mail has that formula and no one can quite crack it the Mm. express can't do it Mm. and it's just sucking in readers and 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 online readers and whatever and it's what is it the biggest news thing in the world now biggest English language news website isn't and there's, it there's so many myths and you know Dacre's been working for so long and been such a success and there's so many myths around him he's one of those sort of characters and I think yeah I'm sure it'll be an interesting read although as we've discussed maybe not true <laughs> so and there we go th- this will appear to every word is true I'll, I'll stake my career <laughs> on that uh, and this appears to show this book that he's quite a hands-on editor as well um, yeah. that he actually sits in the unlike George Osborne will sit in the office all day personally making sure that the copy looks the way he wants apparently he only likes it it on paper as well I don't know if that's yeah, true but that's one of the consistent myths that's said about him so he won't check stuff online he likes stuff printed out to write on which is actually quite nice if it's if it's true I think that's yeah, saving your eyes screens yeah, yeah. You know, it's sensible. how I edit podcasts believe sure. it or not I don't quite know how <laughs> I get away with Completely. that uh, there is just time for our media quiz this week entitled The Facts Machine social media is awash <laughs> with post truth and the media podcast is proud to announce its own fact checking super team correcting the internet one media news story at a time. That's that's you. Your task is to correct the stories that come in on our facts machine. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Stephen, you will say... Stephen. And Louise, you'll say... Louise. The winner is Facebook. The loser is democracy. Let's spool up the facts machine. 
Here's the first fact for you. Would my right honourable friend agree with these words written by a worker on the London Underground yesterday afternoon, penned on a notice board shortly after these events? Stephen. Stephen. No. It's a fake website. Does nobody know that yet? So uh, Every day we get one of these. Sounds like you know what the story is. It's that awful thing, the kind of fake font, handwritten font... Uh, London Underground, yes. you know, some homely homily from a tube driver who just happened to pause a thought for today, and it's always something very kind of apt or, or gentle or whatever, and it's complete bullshit. So yes, it was a sign about Londoners' resilience in the face of terrorism that appeared to be written by a London Underground worker, but it wasn't, as you say, Stephen, it was generated by one of those online tube sign generators, uh, but then was read out to the House of Commons by MP Simon Hoare, which is uh, who I was just channelling there, and it was also read out by Nick Robinson on the Today programme that same morning. Uh, Louise, did you fall foul of this, or I guess everyone at BuzzFeed can spot a meme? BuzzFeed can spot a meme, and it's crazy because these online generators that make the fake versions of these underground signs have been around for years, yeah. but what I thought was quite quite lovely on obviously a very horrible day of of terrorism for the uk i I tweeted a picture of of that sign saying this is really nice but it's fake everyone and everyone was retweeting it but i got loads of replies saying it doesn't matter if it's fake because it's such a nice sentiment which is a sweet idea but also a concerning idea given the nature of fake news and how we must all be vigilant (laughs) but um it was it was quite nice because it almost almost didn't matter that it was fake because it was sharing a nice sentiment on a very difficult day there were Worse cases of people not checking their sources on the day as well, yeah. weren't there? Channel 4 News. Woo! Award the wrong gunman. Yeah. Yes. Uh, who was in jail. Who was in jail and his family were not under police protection. I mean, that is just fantastic. Mm. Yeah, not great. Uh, from Simon Israel as well, who's a pretty respected reporter. Suddenly it's, just I mean, doesn't quite know how that Because that's when you look at that stuff and you think, who, who doesn't check their facts when they're about to go on air with something? And who doesn't triple check or yeah. double check or whatever? Especially when it's quite easy to find out. I mean, that's the thing. If it if they just said, oh, you know, if they, if they covered it with the kind of, we've heard it could be or something. But even then you'd have thought someone in the office would have just did a little Google search. You know, well, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what website tells you who's in prison. <laughs> well, you <laughs> that would be a useful resource, yeah. though, wouldn't it? Uh, right, here is breaking story number two. Breaking: rapper known as Tyler the Creator died in a bus crash. <laughs> what post truth news is this? Buzzing if you know the answer. Uh, Stephen, Stephen again. Yes, this is uh, ABC News in America. Good Very morning. good. Yes, America got their. Twitter account hacked or something like that. And yes. And somebody, instead of doing some kind of radical political things, just put a load of rubbish on there. Well, they were just showing off to their mates, weren't yeah. they? That they'd hacked into a teenage ABC. boy going, no, look at me, you know. I mean, I quite admire that, actually. I mean, think of what you could do hacking the made a news source and then you just decide to. And you go, yeah, it, some, some, some rapper, you know, you're like, oh, come on. You could have. You could have got Trump out of office. You could have been impeached Trump. <laughs> what is the most high profile Twitter account that you have the password to? that you could dick around with if you wanted to. Do you know the BuzzFeed UK one, Louise? I actually don't, so that's probably a, se- a sensible move. So on but your phone? I've, I've worked at many a place where we have no, yeah. have, you, have you known the HuffPo account? I actually probably have phone. some places I used to work for. Yeah, me but too. I, but I wouldn't use them, so I could, don't worry. I could tweet LBC Breaking News if I wanted to. But obviously <laughs> just, none just, of us would use that I could also power. tweet as James O'Brien, and I've been resisting the temptation. <laughs> oh, that's, that's yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. good. And as Keith Lemon. Would be a different tweet. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what about you, Stephen? Do you have any powerful Twitter accounts on your phone? I don't really. I mean, as I referred to you off camera uh, or off mic, I do have some powerful gossip about high-ranking conservative uh, ministers, though. 
So um, I'll give you the LBC breaking password <laughs> later. Yeah, we'll swap. We'll swap tips. Uh, um, I've got the one for magic as well, but it just doesn't feel like a very magic story. Now I know what it is that you're talking about. Uh, right, here is uh, breaking news number three. We have a good working relationship with Andy, who has written for us a couple of times. We feel his company will add value to the business. Stephen, again. Stephen, you've won this like a hat trick if, if this is right. You... I'll pass to you because this is a journalism story. Um... Okay, Louise. Louise. Late. Louise. Louise. Uh-huh. This is uh, the quote from The Telegraph when they have, they've hired Andy Coulson's Correct. PR company yes. to represent them. Uh, is that the fake story or is more, that real? It's not exactly fake. It's more a quote that people might disagree with, but I'm not sure if it's fake. It is the no, real quote. Lost I track of our format. In it's what way is it? Terrifying. It's, it's, well, it's real. not fake news. It is a fact. It's a real. So it is a real story. Andy Coulson has managed to rise from the swamp and has managed to get a job in credible, you know, journalism. Yeah, let's be clear about this because I think. Weirdly, even though it's such a huge story, it's been going on for so many years, people lose track of the phone hacking thing, right? You, you hear the word Andy Coulson, you remember he served the Prime Minister and then he resigned. A lot of people actually forgot that he, he did go, go to, to prison. Yes, yeah. he went to prison because of the phone hacking scandal. Yeah. He has then started up a PR company, which he's entitled to do, and it is his expertise. It's a bit surprising a newspaper would employ him. I guess he chose that contacts survive <laughs> through all kinds of things, you know. But I mean, Telegraph you know, journalists, understandably toxic. upset about that. You know, I mean, he's a toxic brand. He Someone really who is. helped bring down the news of the world is going to tell everyone that the Telegraph is a reputable source. Mm. I mean, to be fair, not to be fair, but it is his PR company, so it doesn't mean that he personally will be doing the representing, but we don't know about that, obviously. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's a, understandably, journalists upset and, and pretty, can, pretty can unimpressed. Well, here's a fact for you. It is 2-1 to Stephen D. Wright on his Woo! media podcast debut. Right. Uh, that is it for our show today. My thanks to Louise and to Stephen. You can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free at our website, themediapodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to listener Lucy Murray, a mathematician from Cardiff. Join Lucy. Keep us on the air. Go to themediapodcast.com slash donate. That's what gave you your complimentary water, Stephen. Oh, I'd be grateful. Definitely. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, I've been Holly Mann, the producer Matt Hill. The media podcast is a PPM production. Till next time. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.